Section 9 of Charles James Fox by Henry Offley Wakeman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5 The Coalition, Part 1. On the 30th of June, 1782, the Cabinet decided for Shelburne against Fox. On the 1st of July, Rockingham died, and on the 2nd, Shelburne accepted from the king the task of forming a ministry. The next three days were spent in negotiations as plausible as they were hollow. Fox was necessarily in a great difficulty. His charges against Shelburne were not such as could be published abroad to his colleagues, much less to the world. A conviction of a man's insincerity is usually formed from numberless small incidents, all pointing in the same direction not from one or two clear and strong cases of deception which can be made the subject of a public accusation. In order to state his whole case against Shelburne, Fox must have detailed at length all the secret history of the Rockingham cabinet and of the Paris negotiations. Something would have doubtless been gained if he had been in a position to enter the lists himself for the premiership and boldly claimed that the gravity of the situation demanded the ablest man at the head. But this was not possible. At every crisis of his life, his sullied character stood up in judgment against him and drove him back from the portals of fame. How could the spendthrift, the libertine, and the gamester, so recently a convert to Whig principles, presume to be the successor of the blameless Rockingham? to lead the great houses of Bentinck and of Cavendish. The Whig families were nothing if not respectable. To be led by a ruined man of fashion and a political adventurer was a degradation not to be thought of for a moment. Yet there was no other candidate of even moderate attainments for the office. If Fox was hopelessly handicapped by his want of character and position, his colleagues were even more impossible for want of ability. The Duke of Grafton had already been proved to be a failure, and his character was no better than that of Fox. Lord John Cavendish was respectable enough, but narrow and priggish in temper. The Duke of Richmond had lately plunged too deep into speculative politics. The party had therefore to give up all thoughts of getting a man to lead it, and had to content itself with a figurehead. The Duke of Portland was rich, respectable, and thoroughly safe. He seemed to divide parties least, and he was accordingly chosen as the person whom the purely Whig section of the cabinet wished to see at the head of affairs. It was unfortunate, as Horace Walpole bitterly said, that the party could at such a crisis produce nothing better than a succession of mutes. It is the hereditary curse of narrow aristocratic cliques to suppress independent ability and to deify the commonplace. Portland, though his Irish enemies might sneer at him as a fit block to hang wigs on, was at any rate a worthy successor to Stanhope and to Pelham, to Newcastle, to Devonshire, and to Rockingham. It is characteristic of the great Whig families who ruled England in the eighteenth century that with the exception of Walpole, they never assimilated to themselves and utilized for their country one man of really independent talent. 
Townsend, Carteret, Pulteney, Pitt, Henry Fox, Shelburne. All of them had one by one either to break with the great families or to conquer them. It is a sufficient condemnation of any political party to record that with the two ablest men in England in its ranks, at a crisis of the country's history so grave and so foreboding, it should have been bound by its own principles to pass over a fox and a burke, and to accept a Portland as its leader and representative. Shelburne was not the man to let slip any advantage over his antagonist which dexterous management could give him. He at once posed before the country as the successor of Chatham, trying to free the king and the country from the domination of a faction. To the king, he appeared as the champion of his right to choose his own ministers and his defender against the phalanx of the hated Whig oligarchy who wished to reduce him to a nonentity. Absolutely secure of his own position at court, he could afford to make the fairest of promises to Fox and handsomely offer him the leadership of the House of Commons, for Fox, he knew, would not serve under him in any circumstances. When the offer was refused and the Duke of Portland chosen as the candidate of the discontented section of the Whigs, it was easy for Shelburne to represent the whole affair as merely an audacious attempt of a few politicians to dictate to the king, and not content with their fair share of power, to insist on absorbing the whole administration. Never was statesman put by the course of events and the skill of his opponents into a more thoroughly false position than was Fox throughout the whole affair. In reality, he was the one man who had a clear and well-considered policy for dealing with the American and foreign difficulties of England as a whole. He appeared to be pursuing the narrowest interests of a party clique, wholly apart from the general welfare. In reality, he had quarrelled with Shelburne because he had found that he was deceiving his colleagues, and was convinced that he would as a minister prove another Lord North. He appeared to have resigned in a pet, because the cabinet disagreed with him on a point of detail in the negotiations, and because he could not force on the counsels of the king a respectable nonentity far inferior to Shelburne in ability and experience. In reality, his motives were dictated purely by what he believed to be the public interest. He appeared to be breaking up his party in the middle of foreign war, simply to satisfy his own personal antipathies. Conway, Keppel, and the Duke of Richmond took this view. They trusted Shelburne rather than Fox. Temple, Thomas Grenville's brother, thought the same. Fox had undone himself, he said. Sir Gilbert Elliot and Adam Smith, on the other hand, considered that he could have done nothing else. Sheridan put the same view in an epigram. Those who go are right, for there is really no other question, but whether having lost their power, they ought to stay and lose their characters. Fox himself summed up the situation in a letter to Thomas Grenville which shows how deeply he felt his position. I assure you that the thing which has given me most concern is the sort of scrape I have drawn you into, but I think I may depend upon your way of thinking for forgiving me, though to say one can depend upon any man is a bold word after what has passed within these few days. 
i am sure on the other hand that you may depend upon my eternal gratitude to you for what you have undergone on my account and that you will always have the greatest share in my friendship and affection i do not think you will think these less valuable than you used to do i have done right i am sure i have the duke of richmond thinks very much otherwise and will do wrong i cannot help it i am sure my staying would have been a means of deceiving the public and betraying my party and these things are not to be done for the sake of any supposed temporary good i feel that my situation in the country my power my popularity my consequence nay my character are all risked but i have done right and therefore in the end it must turn out to be wise if this fail me the pillared firmament is rottenness and earth's base built on stubble these are brave and heartfelt words but many years were to elapse before their fulfilment most politicians looked at fox's conduct as wanting in judgment if not in principle the world in general judging only from the outside thought itself seeking and unpatriotic the king whose dislike had been partially mollified by the magic of fox's personality returned at once to all his old hostility only lord john cavendish burke and the solicitor-general lee left office with portland and fox and the gap was more than supplied by the entrance of william pitt into the cabinet as chancellor of the exchequer fortune seemed to smile on shelburne he had played boldly and unscrupulously for the stake and had won it the battle had been hard and at one time doubtful but in the end victory had declared for him all along the line his rival was not only beaten but discredited secure of the support of the king strengthened by the accession of pitt assisted by all the prestige that a successful party fight gives shelburne might well look forward to a long and unclouded tenure of political power his administration lasted not quite seven months and for more than half that time parliament was in recess prorogued soon after the change of ministry it did not meet again till december during that time the negotiations for peace had dragged slowly along and much had happened to show how correct fox's original estimate of the state of affairs had been the opponents of lord north had certainly been visited by a gleam of fortune's sunshine which had but rarely visited that unlucky statesman one of the first acts of the rockingham ministry had been to supersede with a discourtesy which almost amounted to insult admiral rodney who was in command of the west indian fleet and who had made himself particularly obnoxious to the whigs by his conduct at the capture of st eustatia in seventeen eighty one but fortunately for them before the dispatch arrived rodney had entirely destroyed the allied fleets under de grasse and captured the french admiral you have conquered said lord north in the house but with the arms of philip on the thirteenth of september in the same year the combined attack by the french and spanish forces upon the rock of gibraltar which had been so long preparing was delivered huge floating batteries carrying no less than two hundred and twelve guns especially constructed by the french engineer d'arcon for this work 
poured a storm of shot and shell upon the devoted fortress at a distance of only nine hundred yards in the bay behind them were moored the whole mediterranean fleets of france and spain while from the shore the attack was watched by a land army of forty thousand men and assisted by the fire of land batteries of nearly one hundred and eighty-six guns never was planned so elaborate in its preparation and so terrible in its attack for nine hours the fortress was subjected to a terrific converging fire from over four hundred guns while it only had ninety-six guns with which to reply but in the afternoon it became slowly visible to the band of heroic defenders that their red-hot shot was finding its way through the armour of the floating batteries one by one they began to show signs of distress flames rushed from their holds a swarm of boats shot out from the fleet to try and tow them out of fire but they were scattered by the red-hot balls like autumn gnats by a hailstorm and the huge monsters were left to their fate during the night the flames burnt brighter and dull explosions from time to time told the defenders that their enemies were one by one disappearing beneath the waters when morning broke there was not one of them left the english flag yet waved unharmed over the stubborn fortress rock and one more story of heroic daring was added to the annals of the english race these two great victories showed that fox had good reason for thinking that even in her exhausted state england was more than a match for france and spain the course of the negotiations with america soon showed that his hopes for gaining the american agents to the side of england against the interests of france and spain were by no means chimerical it was soon agreed that canada should remain british and that the thirteen states should become independent but much time was spent over the boundary lines by the quebec act of seventeen seventy four the frontiers of canada were made to stretch as far south as the ohio while between the western frontier of georgia and the mississippi lay a large district almost uninhabited except by indians over which the spaniards claimed a vague suzerainty france conscious that she had led spain into the war by the promise of recovering gibraltar which she could not fulfil was most anxious to confine the united states to the alleghanies in order to keep all the uninhabited indian country free for spanish colonization shelburne fully alive to the advantage of sowing dissensions between america and france and not being able to look forward a hundred years to the time when the territory then so thinly populated should become the great trade centre of the west voluntarily offered to surrender to the states all english claims on the country between the great lakes and the ohio and to endeavour to obtain for them from their allies the mississippi as their western boundary it was all important to the americans to get room for free expansion to the west day by day as the negotiations proceeded community of interest brought the english and american envoys closer together day by day the breach between the spaniards and the americans grew wider and wider until at last by a bold repudiation of the express orders of congress the americans signed the preliminaries of peace with the english on the second of december 
1782, before the Continental powers were prepared to agree. Finding their hand thus forced by the Americans, France and her allies had to give way, and on the 20th of January, 1783, a general peace was at last signed, by which the only substantial gains achieved by France were the acquisition of Tobago, Senegal, and Goree, and the security of her right of fishing off Newfoundland, while Spain had to be satisfied by the two Floridas and Menorca. America, on the contrary, had gained all that she wished for, and more than she had a right to ask. All claim for compensation on behalf of the Loyalists was abandoned. The complete independence of the thirteen United States, the extension of the western frontier to the Mississippi, and of her northern frontier to the Great Lakes, put into her hands the keys of North America. From that moment it became certain that if she was only able to retain her unity, her supremacy over the whole continent was only a matter of time. Shelburne looked upon the Treaty of Versailles as the triumph of his diplomatic skill. He had good reason for the boast. When the negotiations first began, nothing could have been more pitiable than the condition of England. Oswald, Shelburne's own envoy, told Franklin that the ball was at his feet. When the Treaty of 1763 was mentioned to Vergen as a basis of negotiation, he scouted the suggestion and intimated that it was now the turn of France, and she would make the most of her opportunity. Yet, when the treaty was made, England parted with little that was valuable, and she succeeded in retaining intact Gibraltar and her East Indian possessions. There were two sections of politicians, however, to whom the treaty not unnaturally appeared in a very different light. To Lord North and his followers, who had taken up arms to establish the authority of England over her colonies, the wide extension of American frontiers seemed criminally generous, and the desertion of the Loyalists criminally treacherous. With Fox, besides the feeling of dissatisfaction, there was a sense of injustice. Shelburne had ploughed with his heifer, and could not even then avoid a catastrophe. He had won the terms which he had obtained by playing off the Americans against the French, and yet he was the man who had in the Rockingham cabinet nine months ago thwarted the very same plan because it was suggested by Fox. Had it then been adopted, there would have been no necessity for the lavish grants of Indian territory, no cause for the shameful desertion of England's allies. And so it happened that in the turn of fortune's wheel, Fox and Lord North found themselves leading a common opposition and drawn toward each other by a common hatred. Just when Fox and Lord North were being attracted to one another, the ministry of Shelburne was breaking up. Lord Camden had never intended to serve for more than three months, and Keppel only stayed on as long as the war lasted. By the beginning of 1783, more dangerous dissidents than these had declared themselves, and in the case of each one the conduct of the first minister was the real cause of discord. The Duke of Richmond refused to attend the council because of Shelburne's assumption of too much power. The Duke of Grafton resigned the privy seal, complaining of his systematic withholding of confidence. Lord Carlisle resigned the office of Lord Steward, 
throughout the ministerial ranks there reigned the same profound distrust and suspicion on all sides was heard justification of fox's conduct in the previous summer even pitt who alone held his tongue and remained scrupulously loyal to shelburne throughout said afterwards that whatever sins he might have committed as a minister he had atoned for them all in advance by serving under lord shelburne for a year when parties were in this state of utter disintegration it was natural that a desire should manifest itself for a coalition strong enough both in personal ability and political influence to put an end to these spectral ministries which flitted past like figures on a kaleidoscope the establishment of a strong and lasting administration on a sound basis of as the phrase then ran on a broad bottom was the necessity of the hour several schemes of coalitions were in the air through the mediation of dundas and adam overtures were made by shelburne to lord north to admit some of his friends to office in return for a full and unconditional support lord north it was understood probably at pitt's demand was not to claim office for himself on the failure of this scheme shelburne sent pitt to fox to see on what terms he could wheedle back the erring sheep into the fold but fox absolutely refused to hear of any scheme which involved the continued preeminence of shelburne it is impossible for me said fox frankly to belong to any administration of which lord shelburne is the head meanwhile some of the younger members in the house had conceived the idea that of all the coalitions possible one between lord north and fox offered the best opportunities of lasting success the first to suggest the scheme was lord loughborough but the principal movers in it were lord john townsend and george north lord north's son and they were soon afterwards joined by mr eden and richard fitzpatrick the bosom friend and confidant of fox some difficulty was experienced with lord north's followers and apparently little progress had been made beyond a number of private conversations up to the twelfth of february seventeen eighty three on that day dundas who was very earnest to bring about the coalition between lord north and shelburne went to see adam lord north's most trusted friend and in the course of a long conversation told him with the object of making him see the necessity of an immediate junction with shelburne that shelburne had made up his mind to resign if he was left alone which would undoubtedly result in a coalition between pitt and fox and the exclusion of lord north from power for the rest of his life the threat had a very different result to that which dundas expected lord north and his friends fully recognized the importance of preventing a coalition between fox and pitt but determined to use the negotiations already in existence for an alliance with fox to effect the purpose eden and george north were able by dangling the sword of damocles over their heads to persuade the rank and file of lord north's party burke who had embraced the idea with his wonted enthusiasm though less than his wonted wisdom undertook to answer for the rockingham whigs on the fourteenth of february everything was prepared fox and lord north met at the house of george north and arranged terms of alliance lord north agreed that the system of government by departments should be abolished and the direct power of the king over the administration 
checked. Fox acknowledged that economical reform had gone far enough, and both consented that parliamentary reform should be an open question. Upon these terms, all former animosity was laid aside. An amendment to the address on the peace was drawn up by Lord North, which Lord John Cavendish was to move and Fox support, and if, as was expected, the division list showed a majority for them, they were to form a combined administration based on mutual goodwill and confidence. End of section 9